0: We are beautiful, we're irrefutable, we are omnipotent, we're militant, resilient, we're autonomous, we are the consequence, we are consciousness, we are the heartbeat of every freedom fighter who came before us, and all will come after. Feral, adjective, especially of an animal in a wild state, after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, 1 billion rising. Freedom schools, the maroons, We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation from Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Athupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing White supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence, in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. Welcome. One of the greatest gifts that we could give our imaginations is learning about the abolitionist movement and getting involved. While oppressive injustice would have us infighting over toxic crumbs, abolitionism invites us to have standards, respect, and dignity, previously impossible within this nightmarish empire. While the capitalist mainstream would make excuses for perpetuating horrific atrocities, Abolitionism draws on thousands of peer-reviewed studies to make an undeniably compelling case for life-affirming alternatives. Give thanks, then, that we can move from weaponized and implanted ignorance to having humility. Let's learn from some prolific scholar activists who have been proving for decades that abolition is the only sensible way forward, reminding us, in the words of Melanie Cervantes, that we can let go of what does not serve us by abolishing the police. So, to take it back for a little bit, When I was in a seminar called Decolonial Futures in my PhD program in 2011, my doctoral advisor, Dr. Noelani Goodyear-Kaupua, assigned the book, Are Prisons Obsolete? Written by Professor Angela Davis, who actually taught in Noelani's grad program, The History of Consciousness at Santa Cruz. This short text is really a must read. Are any of y'all familiar with this text? So we talked about how prison abolition was a requisite for the Hawaiian sovereignty movement and decolonization more broadly. So in this 2011 book, Dr. Davis writes the following, quote, the prison is considered an inevitable and permanent feature of our social lives. Most people are quite surprised to hear that prison abolition as a movement also has a long history, one that dates back to the historical appearance of the prison as the main form of punishment. In fact, the most natural reaction is to assume that prison activists, even those who consciously refer to themselves as anti-prison activists, are simply trying to ameliorate prison conditions or perhaps to reform the prison in more fundamental ways. In most circles, prison abolition is simply unthinkable and implausible. Prison abolitionists are dismissed as utopians and idealists whose ideas are at best unrealistic and impractical and at worst mystifying and foolish. So to many, this does sound like a revolutionary call to be cutting our losses from oppressive and obsolete structures. However, it's important to note that the modern or 21st century abolitionist movement is an extension of the movement to abolish slavery which plenty of people at the time alleged was radical. What an important reminder for us to not let the popularity or unpopularity of an idea in mainstream public opinion cloud our ethics. If not, horrors can ensue. So like Dr. Davis reminds us, we have to act as if It was possible to radically transform the world, and we have to do that all the time. Now, you may have heard folks discuss the difference between revolution and reform, as if they're pretty opposed. Most of the time, they are. Yet, in this case, there are reforms that can meaningfully move the needle forward towards this ostensibly revolutionary aim of abolition. Much has been said of this in 2020 when it comes to calls for defunding the police. That this, as one mere move, as a part of a broader abolitionist constellation is vital. Yet in isolation, it would be an insufficient co-optation of this broader movement that we're talking about. So to take it back to this idea that I invited us to consider earlier of actively getting involved in this movement as a way to be able to really substantially practice discernment, let alone for the sake of the movement itself, to be sure, I'm wondering... Is there, say, a chapter of critical resistance in your area that you can volunteer for? So I started interning with their LA chapter back in 2006 when I was still in college. And I've pulled up here for you to have a look at one of their abolition organizing manuals that I would really invite us to have a look at if you're not familiar with it already. So this one itself is actually about 15 years old. It came out right when we were organizing when I was finishing up undergrad but they're currently working on a new edition of this document or maybe there's a no new jails campaign that you could materially support in your region right grace sharing I wonder why so many folks are so unable to internalize the parallels between the abolition of slavery and prisons and policing well, you know what I imagine one of the reasons is for that, Grace? I'll pull up an illustration here, right? We talked about this earlier this week, right? In part because of how pernicious propaganda is. So you can see here, right, in this illustration by Meme Industrial Complex, right, an admonition to beware the feel-good photo op, right? And you see, right, in this somewhat aesthetically beautiful illustration, a cop taking a new so sort of co-opting this aesthetic that of course is most widely associated with Colin Kaepernick so again this is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to really be on the lookout for copaganda or this right pro law enforcement propaganda wherever it exists whether it's in sort of junior ROTC programs that are infiltrating our schools that we really need to be doing counter-recruitment around or perhaps if it's in TV shows like Law and Order, right, or whatever it might be. Um, So this would be one of the principal reasons, unfortunately, right, that so many people really do think they've internalized this lie that cops exist to serve and protect everyday people, right? So this is one of the reasons why also So it's so important for us to take seriously, right, like in an illustration that I just pulled up for us to have a look at from Vry that cops protect property not people. So if we know anyone that doesn't have crystal clarity around that reality, I want to sincerely encourage us to see if there is any kind of way that we could support people evolving their consciousness around that topic. So taking it back, right, perhaps there is, again, a critical resistance chapter in your area that you could check out. Or maybe there's a no new jails campaign that you could materially support in your region. I bring this up because just reading books and watching films and talking about this topic isn't going to move the movement forward, nor our consciousness, anywhere near to the extent of what's possible when we actually take time and energy to get involved. Welcome, Eva, good to see you. As a matter of fact, I was initially inspired to get involved in part because my women's studies capstone course required that we do an internship as a core component of the class in college so we could actually do feminist analysis through praxis. So not just playing with romantic or with flowery language in the absence of testing ideas out, of building relationships, of taking risks, and of sometimes doing very mundane work like phone banking, which we did a lot of at the time. And I bring this up also because it's horrifying to see people presuming that they know things that they've mostly only talked about without actual implementation in community. And I also bring this up because that's actually a super Eurocentric understanding of knowing, right? This is kind of like taking it back to, right, Rene Descartes, who's considered one of the so-called fathers. Welcome, Claudia. Good to see right, of the modern kind of Eurocentric, right, Western canon of philosophy, right, who said cogito ergo sum or I think therefore I am, right, for many of us that is not, right, any way consistent with some of our ancestral ways of knowing that might actually involve embodying a thing, doing a thing, not just kind of theorizing, sitting in a chair in the abstract, right, and then acting as if that is actually sufficient for saying that we understand something in a way that's totally disembodied. And so again, this is really one of the fundamental sort of errors to make it plain of that kind of Western canonical take on knowing and on education and on knowledge more broadly is like we can just talk into infinity, like we're brains in vats. Descartes literally said that. He lamented. He's like, if only I didn't have a body, right? If only I didn't have feelings, then I could know with so much more truth value, right? And maybe for some of us, that is actually a theory of knowledge that makes sense. But for a lot of the rest of us, that's not, right? And then what does that mean when it comes to movement wisdom and knowing and understanding, right? You can say that again, Grace, right starting to see capitalism slash white supremacy more and more as body warfare you can say that again and Claudia saying ain't that the truth and so the thing around that is how about we put that in conversation within this moment the co-optation of so much right Movement work, when people see that there's some money in it, when it's been professionalized, right, folks taking their photo ops, at protests and the like, instead of doing that, welcome Felicia, good to see you, right, mundane, unglamorous, unsexy work of the phone banking, the cleaning up after meetings, right, the going door to door, right, actually substantially moving some of these movements forward. Welcome Inval, good to see you and so around that right maybe if you're a student or you're an educator right you could work to get cops or security guards off of your campus where that's relevant or perhaps your city or municipality is increasing funding for surveillance and you could join a local organization to resist that kind of encroachment Or perhaps your region is attempting to expand the scope of criminal law or sentencing, and you could take action to stop that. Can you take a moment now, please, to pause and identify where you're already connected to the abolitionist issue if you're not explicitly involved in this movement right now? So for most of us, This would involve connecting with other humans, likely leaving our homes, or maybe writing letters and testimonies or phone banking from home if those are the options that are available to us right now. Or maybe for example, you've heard about the 2020 BREATHE Act, which is a project of the Movement for Black Lives, but you haven't gotten the chance to read it yet. Can you get some folks together to read it and strategize how to get plugged in? Have any of y'all had the chance to check it out yet? Or maybe have any of you heard of it? Because again, abstraction can be incredibly dangerous. And we don't actually know what we're talking about if our theory isn't explicitly embodied in this real world materially that we're sharing together. So on that front, to give one example, some folks who may have distance from some of these issues might sincerely ask that tired question, but what about violent crime? As in, what do we do, say, with folks who rape, for example? And this question, unfortunately, is horrifyingly misguided on multiple fronts, which can be much more clear to folks who have actually been involved right in the anti-violence movement or in anti-violence organizing from any justice-related perspective. So what does happen to folks who rape, sexually abuse, or who have allegedly raped? Let's look at a few examples. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Brett Kavanaugh, Clarence Thomas. They're on the Supreme Court, they're in the White House, and they're about to be in the White House as President of the United States. So that means we have to examine some subtext or presuppositions that are at play within these mainstream understandings Oh, people assumed that folks who rape go to jail. So that's actually a profound misunderstanding of both the rape culture and of prisons. I know that nobody who's raped me ever got arrested or went to jail for that. So why is that misunderstanding so popular? Here's where we need to take it back to, right? Some of these misunderstandings about the functions that prisons and policing perform within the broader society. And then certainly when it comes to what gets called violent crime, also unpacking right, mainstream assumptions around how that is and isn't dealt with. And so on that front, you know I want to invite y'all's attention back Two, the organization Incite Women of Color Against Violence that I've mentioned before in this series. So they have multiple texts around this in particular that seriously merit our attention if you're not familiar with them. So I'll bring out three of their anthologies here. So one, their first anthology is called Color of Violence. And if you haven't checked that out previously, that's absolutely one of the most formidable texts when it really comes to right talking about right, the anti-violence movement from a substantially anti-capitalist, intersectional, even ostensibly decolonial perspective. And the second right that I would mention here is called The Revolution Begins at Home, Confronting Partner Abuse in Activist Communities. And then the third one, which we've talked about earlier in this season, is their legendary anthology called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. And Insight has actually done a whole lot of collaboration with Critical Resistance, the most well-known abolitionist movement, right, of this modern 21st century abolitionist movement in the settler colonial U.S. And I bring up, for example, that legendary text of theirs, Color of Violence, because one of the things that they outline so clearly there is that, right, the U.S. state, is actually arguably the greatest purveyor of violence, including right domestic violence, intimate partner violence. But for sure, even like MLK named clearly right before he was assassinated, especially in the year before he was taken out, for sure the U.S. federal government, if we're including the military-industrial complex, is the greatest purveyor of violence on the planet. And so for people who do make a sincere, good faith effort to care about violence, right, then we've got to acknowledge first and foremost The U.S. state is the greatest purveyor of violence. Why would we be going to them, right, to seek to ameliorate that issue when they're the proponents of the issue? So this is kind of like, do you all remember, right, when we were talking about criminality, how I brought out, right, Dr. Lewis Gordon's, right, uh, idea from looking at Fanon's life, right, the legendary, right, uh, revolutionary Franz Fanon that right to him colonialism was a crime scene right and what was such an astounding mindfuck, so to speak was that it was as if professionally he wasn't allowed to say that and the very people that were like look at all of these problems solve them help people heal as a psychiatrist were the culprits themselves, the colonizers, right? Grace sharing all three of those resources from Insight introduced to me by Anjali and Liberation Spring have been transformative in my life-slash-consciousness heart. Grace, you know, I'm so stoked to hear that, and I'm seriously so stoked that you've been able to check them out. Again, they are a very, very big deal. So again, related to that color of violence anthology, for folks that do make this effort to say, like, well, I care about violence, what does that mean when it comes to abolition, looking at how cops perpetuate violence, border patrol perpetuates violence, ICE perpetuates violence, right? The Department of Homeland Security perpetuates violence, and so on and so forth, right? For those of us that do sincerely care about creating substantial alternatives to violence, this is why we need the abolitionist movement even more, right? It's not like wanting to attend to say violence against women or more broadly and expansively multidirectionally across genders, if we cared about that, that would be some kind of impediment to the abolitionist movement. That's a horrific lie and misunderstanding that we really need to flip and reverse, right? So then how about that second anthology of theirs that I mentioned, right? The Revolution Begins at Home, Confronting Partner Abuse in Activist Communities. Are any of y'all familiar with that, besides Grace? So if not, one of the reasons why I bring it up is because it is one of the more incredible resources for us to look to if we want to learn about transformative justice. So this is like a little bit more liberatory, let's be real, in a lot of ways than a little bit more popular of an idea that some of y'all are probably familiar with, that of restorative justice, that there's this whole sort of cottage industry around of, right? professionals that do trainings that are making a lot of money teaching about this method, right? But transformative justice is really linked up in many substantial ways with the abolitionist movement too, and it seeks to redress, right, some of the social ills or concerns that the prison industrial complex and that cops pretend like they're taking seriously. So what might that look like, whether it's substance use, whether it's houselessness, right? In that sense, actually, I would say that we can see the prison industrial complex as a massive co-optation Frankly, because I know many of y'all know that this whole autumn series is about decolonial discernment. We're not just kind of in broad brushstroke talking about problematic things and rad things. (laughs) And so on that front, right, again, if the PIC or the prison industrial complex is a co-optation, that really merits our taking seriously. We've been talking about co-optation earlier this season. And what does that mean? So the prison industrial complex alleges, like in this instance we are just talking about, to care about violence against women, to care about intimate partner violence more broadly, or to care about, right, say, child abuse and the like. But when we look to what they actually do on the ground, you know, even if they're masquerading as if they're addressing real concerns theoretically, what they're actually doing is, in a way, making it harder for us to actually address those concerns, right? So if people are calling for, say, retribution instead of healing or instead of repair or instead of rehabilitation or instead of, right, recovery, so this is one major distinction also that the abolitionist movement takes super seriously because we know that, right, the broader carceral state and system is a punitive system, right? It is about punishing people. It's not about rehabilitating folks, right? And what's one clear example that we can see of this? So we know that, for example, right, houseless folks, right, and many other poor folks get swept up in the carceral system by virtue of, right, they being cash poor. So maybe, right, you can see, and this is something that critical resistance talks about as an example, right, maybe in a park or at the beach, you might see tourists laying down and taking a nap and cops might walk right by them, but if next to those folks or a little ways down the park or down the beach right you see someone that seems to be houseless also taking a nap engaged in the same behavior they're disproportionately more likely to actually get arrested and then incarcerated and then when they're swept up in this system it's like okay now you've got a criminal record how's that gonna impact your likelihood to be able to get a job so to be able to be gainfully employed for the rest of your life degree decrease the likelihood 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 that you would have to, say, steal to be able to put food on your table to be able to survive, and so on and so forth, right? Then with that arrest record, what's that going to do in terms of impacting your likelihood to be able to maintain housing, to have access to public housing, for example, and so on and so forth? So it's like the tentacles of this unjust system permeate so many different areas of social life in a way that makes it harder and harder for impacted folks to be able to survive, let alone thrive, right, this is in part because of the punitive nature of the system. And around that, right, I know that y'all might recall I mentioned, right, someone I was able to organize with through critical resistance back when I was in college, Dr. Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore. She has a term, right, coming from an upcoming book that she uses to describe this that's super important for us to take seriously. She calls this, quote, organized abandonment, end quote organized abandonment. Are any of y'all familiar with that term? I really wanna invite us to take that seriously because that right, provides some cultural vocabulary or some languaging to be able to have a little more precision, accuracy, in perceiving what it is that we're actually dealing with, right? So vast swaths of humans, right, being abandoned in this incredibly organized, systematized way, right? And so when we recognize that, Then it's much more clear, wow, the prison industrial complex totally does co-opt what otherwise could have been amazingly transformative, right, or visionary ways that we could be organizing our relationships with one another. Yeah, thank you for that shout out, Grace, sharing Ruth Wilson Gilmore did a great webinar through Haymarket earlier this year talking about organized abandonment. Yeah, I would definitely encourage people to check that out if you're not familiar with some of her, right, engagements around that just in 2020. Thank you for sharing that piece. And so isn't that helpful for us just to get a little bit more specific around what it is we're actually talking about? So then on that front, right, and thank you for that link, isn't it useful for us to recognize Well, yeah, within the abolitionist movement, right, since the inception, right, of incarceration, right, in the settler colonial U.S., on Turtle Island and in Hawaii and so many of its colonies, right, then we can see, oh, yeah, what would it mean if we set down that organized abandonment and instead organized systems of mutual aid, of solidarity, of actual justice, of genuine security, of genuine safety, of consent, and so on and so forth. And so on that front, another key tenet of the abolitionist movement that's super important for us to contend with is this pushing back against the idea of people as disposable. Right. Because that's something that unfortunately, right, capitalism indoctrinates, right, most of us into this notion that, right, you can throw things away like disposable plastics. And the idea of throwing things away is so pervasive that it even extends to life, including human life. Right. What the legendary scholar, Dr. Nefertzi Tadir, talks about as capitalism's perpetual underbelly, right, or remaindered populations or communities, right, like just a remainder almost like at the end of a variable if you have remaining numbers, right, excluded from the principal equation, Um, and this is, right, within the mainstream economic languaging something that people talk about, oh, just externalized costs, That's, you know, not what we're going to censure and privilege, including planets. Thank you for that, Grace. Exactly, right? And, you know, around that, when you bring in the piece like trashing a planet, like the Earth, for example... Isn't that a really ripe moment to pause and to see what epic double standards we're confronting? So when we see these clueless tech bros, like, for example, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, that are like, we want to colonize Mars, give us billions of dollars. So many folks are like, yes, we support you, so innovative, that's amazing, here are billions. But then when folks are like, we want children to be able to have food security, right, or shelter, folks are like, you're gonna have to wait 50 years, this is impractical, where do you think that money is gonna come from? And so I really invite us to take seriously those kinds of double standards when it comes to this invitation, right, the abolitionist movement is extending to us around our imagination to not get co-opted in that kind of way. It's almost like, right, for those of us that have experienced trauma, whether it's intergenerational trauma within our families and our lineages, or even individually within our lives, trauma can impact our imagination in really specific ways. And one of the things that can happen, ask me how I know, is we can end up catastrophizing. And what is that? It's this form of fantasy production, to use the kind of right psychiatric or psychological jargon, psychoanalytic jargon more specifically, where our imagination gets co-opted by the worst case scenario, right? And this is something that I notice politically on a daily basis in a place like the settler colonial U.S. And so maybe you have experienced this individually. So I could share for example, even when I was younger, right, say when I was in my 20s or my early 20s, the idea of even surviving into my 30s seemed incomprehensible right or if you have right literally lived decades right of going paycheck to paycheck without any kind of say financial support from a family or a partner or anyone else then the idea of, say, thinking of retirement planning could just be an insult, a heartbreaking insult. Like, must be nice for people to be able to even have the privilege to plot in that kind of way. And so when it comes to, right, some of this invitation that abolitionism is sharing with us around expanding our imaginations, dilating our imaginations, I really want to encourage us to see that as an amazing opportunity to put the catastrophizing down right so if that is relevant for you or for anybody that you know I know that's relevant for so many people I know right to see can we identify it where it shows up nothing like stating the problem right and then seeing if we can meaningfully grapple with it in any kind of way, like to acknowledge, wow, it seems like our political imagination has been ethically foreclosed or shut down, right? And if that is indeed the case, what can we do to nourish our imaginations to recognize actually, right, this prison nation isn't inevitable. It's not natural. So taking it back to that excerpt that I opened with from Dr. Angela Davis's book, Are Prisons, Right, Obsolete, seeing, wow, look at how people in the settler-colonial U.S. actually think prisons are natural and inevitable. That, to me, is a sign of, a horrifically foreclosed imagination, and so we need to do something around that. Yeah, Grace Sherry, and seeing abolition as an invitation to our imaginations, beautiful. It really is and such a gift on that front, if you ask me. And to be clear, not like, oh, let's co-opt the abolitionist movement just for the sake of nourishing our imaginations, hence my strong encouragement earlier, right, for folks that are not materially involved in that movement, to get materially involved in that movement at our earliest convenience where we can fit in. So maybe say for folks who who are in the Bay Area and so-called California, that might involve resisting urban shields. This could look like so many different things depending upon where we find ourselves. But more broadly, right, this idea of expanding our imagination politically and how incredibly powerful that is, is something also that coming full circle to talking about right some of what I learned from some native Hawaiian professors in my PhD program at the University of Hawaii, it's also actually something that Dr. Noinoy Silva has mentioned in an interesting way in talking about right US imperialism in Hawaii and on Oahu. So in an article that she co-authored, she actually talked about The different way that folks, whether it's a Kanaka Maoli on Oahu, right, versus, say, some settlers there understand time and understand the future so again I started off talking about this course right in decolonial futurisms and one of the things that she mentioned was in terms of colonial takes on environmentalism there are some organizations you could think here like the Sierra Club for example that have this mentality related to the earth that involves say them wanting wanting right their grandchildren to be able to hike going down a certain path the right in a particular kind of way that actually really invisibilizes say in the Hawaiian context native Hawaiians that have living breathing real relationships with the lands of that archipelago right now and surprise surprise in a way that privileges the settlers right and what they might want centuries into the future materially at the expense of the indigenous folks whose land they're colonizing. And so I bring that up because also when it comes to this futurist visioning that we're talking about, right, setting down these lies of inevitability that Dr. Angela Davis was warning us about, right, when we're in a colonial context, like, for example, the US or Canada, right? We're inundated with these colonial ideas, right? So it's like these colonizers that are scheming to maintain their hegemony, even generations into the future, could be with their trusts and with their foundations and with their tax evasion or Eva, like you're sharing with our quote resettlement end quote exactly (laughs) right and with their underground bunkers and maybe their dreams of space colonization and occupying land on top of the largest aquifers on the planet whether it's in right Paraguay or wherever that the Bushes and the Cheney family and so on and so forth right are securing their viable futures at the expense of people in the here and the now and in a way that justifies, do you see this? One of the takeaways, justifies then being patently unethical right now to BIPOC, to poor folks, to the planet, we could continue. Grace sharing, right, when I see White and other settlers in Hawaii saying, quote, we need to preserve the aina so our kids can afford to live here, end quote. Precisely, right? So their take on visioning is so atomized, right, hyper-individualistic in a little silo or in their own little personal vacuum, and it's so selfish that they would see a starving person in front of them right now and be like, sorry, can't help you. I haven't topped off my Roth IRA so that I can be good 40 years from now. And they could legit frame that in their warped perspective as if that was being responsible. And so I really wanna invite us to notice that wherever we see this kind of colonization of the future, happening within people's imaginations because that's a real impediment to the abolitionist movement. That's a real insult, right, to our visions of abolition that we could be cherishing and nourishing and taking seriously right now, right, including through that material involvement, Grace, that you were reiterating earlier. And so, right, especially also, right, if folks have been in spaces, right, where it would seem like abolitionism is just, right, unrealistic, to pause and to see... Oh wow, right, does this mean that right our imagination has been co-opted, right, by some of right the injustices and the forms of oppression, right, that are structuring this carceral logic in this moment, right, in a way that's actually deeply unfair to the kinds of decolonial futures that we could be nourishing right now? And so around that, actually, one of right, those Insight, Women of Color Against Violence anthologies that I named earlier and that I'd really like y'all to check out actually shared a little bit of a vignette that's relevant here. So in talking about anti-violence organizing in particular, a story was told about people getting together and explicitly as a part of a little bit of visioning, like some of y'all might have done when you're a part of organizations and we are wanting to kind of imagine into the future together. And right for folks doing work around, right, intimate partner violence and domestic violence, right, visioning, a few years out folks were sharing some of what they were hoping for right in the context of that long-term visioning for their organizations and right some folks were talking about hoping to secure more funding and other folks were talking about maybe different laws being implemented but nobody actually mentioned what an end to violence Now, you might be thinking perhaps they were just being pragmatic, but here's the thing, maybe not. And so we do need to talk about the impact on our strategizing of what a lot of people call incrementalism. Welcome, Ali, good to see you. And so on that front, I bring this in because this is also something that's kind of similar to that reformism that I alluded to earlier, right? So are any of you familiar with this language of incrementalism, or do you have any sense of what that is? So I bring that up because it can be, again, a massive impediment to our taking seriously, right, what abolitionism can look like within our neighborhoods, within our schools, within our communities. And so kind of like, right, we can get this context clue from the term itself, like in increments, right, an incrementalist approach, to political change, right, would have us maybe going from one crumb to one crumb to one crumb, even if it's toxic, even if we didn't want it to begin with, even if it was kind of just accidentally flung off of a pre-existing table, without pausing to realize hang on a minute, maybe I didn't even want any of those toxic crumbs. Maybe we could create our own pie that could be nourishing, that could be delicious, right, where we're not just, right, attempting to sustain ourselves off of these crumbs. That could be more substantial, right? So, yeah, incremental reform on the way to abolition, potentially. And so if you'll get the chance and you're curious to get into this a little bit more, I would like to encourage you to check out some of what the organization Critical Resistance has written specifically about abolitionist reforms. So you may remember I alluded to that earlier. And again, it might seem like a little bit of a contradiction. Like, hang on a minute, isn't it reform or abolition? Aren't they sort of mutually exclusive? But again, the thing is, again, like we have seen with some calls to defund the police just in the 2020 year, right, there are forms of incrementalism or reformism that can actually move us closer to abolitionism. So actually they're not always in contrast to one another. And so one of the reasons why it's important for us to realize that is because maybe in the school that you go to or that you work at, people might feel a little bit more open to certain reforms. And so if you're looking at different reforms to potentially really invest some time and energy into, there's nothing like ensuring that there are some of those reforms that are going to be moving us towards abolition instead of being in contrast to or in competition to the abolitionist movement. So I'm curious to see if y'all have any questions related to abolitionism, especially based off of anything that we have been getting into so far. So in case you do, please feel free to post any of them in the chat. It would be super interesting to be able to get into them. Uh, and again, I do want to bring up, and this is also, again, courtesy of critical resistance. So a few of the different areas, right, that the prison industrial complex specifically tries to co-opt, right? So specifically areas where they're allegedly providing some kind of response or some kind of solution. So CR says that a few of those are poverty, homelessness, or we could say houselessness more broadly for people, indigenous folks that might be like in Hawaii in their homes, but without a house, Uh, joblessness, substance use, violence, abuse, political dissent, mental dis-ease, and even fear, right? So these are some of the areas of that, right, in the absence of some abolitionist visioning and organizing within the mainstream, a lot of our loved ones might think, oh, cops are dealing with that. It's fine. We don't have to take, right, any of those issues seriously because they're already being addressed by the police. And again, the thing is that's, clearly, one, a really dangerous misunderstanding. And also one of the things is that then what are the implications of that when it comes to even, say, the way that resources are distributed, right? People might think, oh, well, because cops and prisons are handling all of that, we should give them more money. We should give them more infrastructural support and so on and so forth. Grace shares... I'm curious whether if there's no local chapter of CR in our area, whether you recommend starting a chapter of an org versus a more independent study group versus a consciousness raising group or choosing an issue relevant to the local community to organize around or some combination. What an awesome question. Thank you for that really depends. So for example, I know in Hawaii, one of the major concerns that a lot of folks have had for some time, right, is the way in which so often, right, folks that end up getting arrested in Hawaii that are local or that are Native Hawaiians, right, can so often end up being incarcerated on the continent, say maybe even in the south, right, in an area that may be in, right, a women's prison in Georgia, for example, Um, and the way that that, right, can be horrific in terms of, right, people not being able to visit their loved ones, right, not being able to, right, have land-based practices, culturally relevant practices, spiritually meaningful practices be available or accessible, right, just by virtue of, right, that geographic challenge, right? So as opposed to, say, in other parts of the settler colonial U.S., where when folks end up being incarcerated, they can, right, be sent off to rural areas that are, right, super prohibitive and cumbersome for family and loved ones to be able to visit them, right, when we're talking about, right, from Hawaii to the continent, that's, right, amplified or exacerbated for sure. So I know that some folks, right, have been doing work around that in particular. And then as well, say in the Hawaiian context, Another concern that I know that some folks have been doing work around there is, right, when it comes to what I just mentioned around, right, culturally meaningful support for folks that are locked up and spiritually, right, meaningful uh, support for folks that are locked up. What I have heard from activists, especially on island in Oahu, is, right, we've got to talk about Christianity, unfortunately. It's so much easier, as I have heard told to me, for folks to be able to go in, right, to offer right programming, right, if it's a Bible studies, right, or if it is right bringing religious paraphernalia that's specifically Christian and so often in the English language to folks. But then, if people want to bring in right anything related to, say, in the Native Hawaiian language, right, or specifically related to spiritual practices that aren't Christian surprise surprise spoiler alert right that's much more difficult right if right possible at all whatsoever so I would be right super curious to see were you to look where you are right now to what some of the most pressing issues are right those would be just two as examples to get the ball rolling right to see what the actual material needs are in this moment that folks are concerned around, um, and then to do a little bit of strategizing and visioning based off of that in particular, right? Um, Because so many of these issues are deeply place-based, like so much that we have been talking about, right, more broadly over the course of this whole season. Let me know if that makes sense, please. Um, And again, one of the reasons why I bring that up too is because, you know, even in the instance of, say, police violence, right? Um, Of course, there are some exceptions, including tragically this year. Although, right, the situation of police violence, say, in Hawaii is not exactly the same as, right, on the continental US. And so I really, for all of us that are sitting with, right, some of these questions right now in terms of, right, how we can be most supportive, right, of abolition, where we're rooted in the moment, I'd really like to encourage us to be as attuned as possible to some of those place-based distinctions, right? Uh, And so on that front, you know, actually, let me look up really quickly. I don't know whether or not she's still there, but... um, One of the co-founders of Insight Women of Color Against Violence, Um, last time I checked, was actually um, in the sociology department um, within the University of Hawaii system. Uh, Yeah, it looks like um, Dr. Mimi Kim might still be there. So if you get the chance also, if you might be curious to connect with her, um, I talked about her being on my dissertation committee before I left. She does super rad work, um, and also in the realm of transformative justice, she actually founded an organization that's called Creative Interventions, that does really tremendous work, bringing in personal stories and testimonies from folks right, as a part of right, the broader anti-violence movement from a TJ perspective or a transformative justice perspective and an abolitionist perspective. So Grace, if you're curious to get connected with Professor Mimi Kim, um, again, who is a sociologist at the University of Hawaii, that might be super rad. Uh, Great, sharing intersectional abolition, so many issues to consider. Mahalanui, thank you for always bringing it back to how place-based these issues are, and also for those very helpful specifics for Hawaii heart. Dr. Mimi Kim, thank you so much. Just recently connected with... Candice Fujikane, rad, full circle movements, awesome. <laughs> Have heard of creative interventions, excited to check them out. We'll report back, smiley face. I'm so stoked that you're going to check them out. Yeah, I've really been impressed by their work over the years. She's been going at that at least since I was living there 10 years ago. So yeah, that would be really exciting for y'all to connect. And Candace also would be rad to be able to get connected with two around these issues. So yeah, last time I checked, they're both on Oahu, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're also synced up to folks doing work on neighboring islands also. How about any other questions that y'all might have, right, or concerns or ideas more broadly based off of anything that we have been getting into so far? I also want to share with y'all, and this is actually important if you ask me in terms of supporting people, right? humanizing and connecting with and developing sort of affective, right, resonance with the movement. One of my favorite, right, uh, abolitionist memes that emerged just this year in 2020. So shout out to salt.xmt for this rad meme. Welcome, Ellie, good to see you. That if you're looking at my screen now, right now, you can see reads. I thought I wanted love, but it turns out I want to abolish the police uh, with a couple of adorable chihuahuas, one that's a little doe-eyed and one with the ski mask on. Um, And of course we can both want love and police abolition, although I bring this up in part because I know it's so good. Because, alas, for a whole lot of folks, right, the abolitionist movement is something that they might have become a little more familiar with just in 2020 than ever before in their lives. I'd be curious to know if that might be the case for some of you or if you have a bit of a relationship with it prior to this year. And so one of the things that I would also like to share on that front is... Um, Just taking it back to, like I shared earlier, starting to intern with Critical Resistance's Los Angeles chapter in 2006, it's important to name that in 2006, kind of like Dr. Angela Davis was alluding to, a lot of people thought, prison abolition? Is this just super impractical or what could you possibly mean? It's definitely something that within the mainstream would have been conceived of as sort of beyond the pale, so to speak, or somewhat contentious or controversial, to put it mildly. And so isn't it interesting, right, for those of us that have the fortune to be able to grow old, to be able to write observe shifts politically over the decades right that for something such as this movement to have really exploded in popularity within the broader consciousness this year in 2020 why is it that something 14 years ago that was so sensible for those of us that were linked up to all of this incredible scholarship and amazing activism why would it take 14 years for any of these conversations to even start within the mainstream consciousness. And I raise that because, right, what does that mean about what right now in 2020 might be considered radical by most people that the mainstream might take 14 years to catch up to? Maybe in 2034, people are gonna be realizing like, ooh, what an interesting idea. We should be having debates about this. That maybe you have some sense of now, perhaps you have some affinity towards now, but perhaps might be getting systemically belittled or marginalized in spaces as if it is allegedly too radical, right? So let's see here, Ali sharing, can you speak to the connections between abolition and dreaming slash imagining? Oh, we got into that right before you came through. (laughs) And then how structures like white supremacy and racial capitalism can dismantle our ability to dream and imagine. That is like exactly what we're talking about right before you joined us. Yes, exactly how folks often respond to abolitionism with the idea that it's absurd or impractical right and so around that right when you get the chance to get into some of this right if you're able to listen to the recording that's we're on the same page we totally got into that Um, but one of the things that I would share for now is um, to really beware what is normalized and naturalized within the mainstream so again that's kind of like why I exactly just named like Many of us, easy for me to say as a social scientist that has read so much of this scholarship and had it assigned and got into it for decades with so many scholars and activists and seminars, right, and off campus doing organizing. But the thing is, how is it that something that has been studied so carefully for centuries could only have really ever made it to mainstream discourse in 2020, So one of the things, right, that's a takeaway around that is as follows, we can't, this is one of the things that I started off sharing, use, right, popularity or unpopularity in mainstream public opinion to essentially adjudicate our ethics, right? And so if, you know, this is one of the takeaways of this entire Weeds and Seeds series, right, all autumn long, if we're sensing into something, right, if we have read and we've studied and we've engaged in organizing and we have a strong notion that some change is viable and it's compelling, right, what can we do to respect and to cherish that knowing particularly in the face of something being systematically belittled and marginalized as if it's too out there right and you know that's actually a pretty deft segue I have to share Um, later on today I'm doing a workshop with Oakland summer school that's free if any of y'all would like to join me at 1 p.m. Pacific for an hour and a half Um, that's called psychic self-defense for lunatics and this is exactly some of what we're going to be getting into, spoiler alert, during that workshop, is, right, for folks that are perceiving things that might not be trending, right, we know that wisdom doesn't trend, far from it, for sure in, right, colonial societies like the U.S. or Canada, right, how can we ensure that, right, that lack of mainstream awareness or understanding doesn't impede our capacity to know what we know and to have respect for our perception because we can do this with humility like we've talked about earlier this season. So it doesn't mean that we have to be arrogant by any stretch of the imagination. It could just be that we've really delved into an area that most other people haven't. So it makes sense that we might know some things subsequently in that area that most of our loved ones might not. So to be continued around that piece, if any of y'all are able to come through, a little bit later today to that workshop. However, we can go ahead and begin to wrap things up out of respect for y'all's time. If you imagine that this might be beneficial for other folks to be able to listen to, please feel free to share. Uh, And more broadly, if you're open to scoping out some of the resources that I shared today, that would be really wonderful. If you're able to kick down any kind of financial offering via Patreon or PayPal, or just a critical resistance, that would be really amazing. Uh, And if you'd like to share out any of these ideas, please do either cite me or whomever of the sources that I shared today that you would like to share out in community. Thank you all so much for listening and for being able to come through and participate. And I'm super stoked to continue on with y'all with this weeding and seeding next week. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadia, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email LiberationSpring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out LiberationSpring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervascio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward, people in power, all power to the people, is the hour of the peaceful, freedom is ours, yeah, freedom is ours.